0: Hello everyone, this is the young man in the sea. Today we will talk about coral algae with a guest from Brazil. Coral algae are very interesting organisms and we will see why they're so special and what environmental challenges they face. So
1: Victor, you are our guest for today. Can you, can you just introduce yourself to the audience who who are you and where do you come from what's your favorite animal all things that we want to know
2: okay yeah first of all thank you for having me it's super nice to be here and um well i'm victor i'm also part of the imbrc as you guys and well Talking about favorite animals, I think I'm going to start with why I got into marine sciences, which is because of whales, basically. When I was a kid, I was that weird kid that just loves whales. And uh, when I was around seven, I already said to my mom that I was going to be a marine biologist (laughs) and that I was going to study whales. In the end, Mm -hmm. I got to something far more weird than whales, (laughs) which is what I'll be talking to you guys about. But that's how everything started.
1: Okay, so, so when you were seven, you were, you were very interested in whales. H- how did you um, apply your, your favorite animal in the study that you eventually chose? Because you went to university in Brazil, right? What did you do there?
2: Okay, so um, I actually started studying in Brazil. I studied my bachelor in biology because I at that point, I already knew that I was not going to work with whales anymore, but I was still deeply in love with the oceans. I had this crazy fascination about uh corals and coral reefs, and that's really what got got me into biology in the first place and uh, after when i when I decided that I was really going to do that as my profession and in Brazil, I went to school for biology and I didn't go to oceanography or marine biology directly because I still wanted to to get to know other areas and to be really sure that I was going for the sea. I wanted to get a little bit of everything else before and it actually helped me see that I was indeed (laughs) going to to study (laughs) the sea because that's what I really loved about the area. Yeah, I'm from, I forgot to say that, but I am from Brazil, I'm from Sao Paulo, and I'm not really that close to the sea, but I grew up going to the beach um, every end of the year because my half, half of my family lives near the coast, so I would always be around.
1: Yeah, so you got to see a lot of the sea and that really sparked your interest in uh, marine biology later. Yeah, exactly. Now, in your own words, you got involved into some really weird stuff. What is this weird stuff?
2: Yeah, so I got really into coralline algae. And that's something that not a lot of people end up hearing about, Uh, even in our profession. I know a lot of my colleagues don't ever hear about that or just hear it really slightly during their courses or even during lectures. But... It's just coralline algaes are those uh, algaes that, as the name suggests, are calcareous. So they are Mm -hmm. hard. They are just like corals. They're in the sense that they are uh, environmental engineers. And they are actually very important for coral reefs. But usually they are left out of the conversation because they're not as studied as the coral reefs. But yeah, I got Mm -hmm. into them because... In Brazil, when I started doing my internship and my project there, I started working with uh, not coral reefs, but what we called uh, reefal ecosystems in Brazil, because we don't have that many coral reefs. And so it's mostly, uh, how can I say, rocky shores, and we call Mm -hmm. those uh, similar to reefs. And while I started working with Acidians, which are also pretty weird, <laughs> associated yeah. with coralline algae, and that was my my project for around three years. I was just uh, trying to understand how an interaction, an apparent interaction between those two organisms, was happening in the coast of São Paulo, because we saw that this interaction was just uh, just dominating in some parts of of the coast and they were never studied before. So I was trying to first just understand which species they were and trying Hmm. to just get the really like the basic knowledge about them before everything. That's how I learned about the coralline algae in the end and completely fell in love with them because uh, they're so interesting. And yeah, well, I'm going to go deep into that, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Coraline algae contains kind of the words coral and algae. How would you distinguish them? What's so special about them?
2: Well, the coralline algae, they are indeed algae. They are rhodophytes, So they are the red algae, we would say. But the difference between the other uh, groups of algae is that the coralline algae have this uh, capacity to uh, aggregate, Ca- calcium carbonate in their cell walls, the same idea of the corals, and they're very different from corals in the sense that they are completely different organisms. Corals are animals mm-hmm. uh, and they're not photosynthetic, whereas the and algae, because they are algae indeed, they do ph- photosynthesis, photosynthesis and they are, their biology is completely different than the biology of a, of a coral, for sure.
1: Yeah, so they are algae, but they are they form hard structures.
2: Exactly, and that's what I said about them being bioengineering, because they form these hard structures um, that are usually very complex and create a three-dimensional structure in the bottom of the seas. They usually are associated with a lot more um, creatures, both other algae and other animals that just stuck on them. That's why they are so important to those ecosystems uh, they are also very similar to corals in the sense that, for example, in the Great Barrier Reef, in some of the high island uh, reefs, they can reach 80 or
0: 90 percent of the cover of calcium carbonate. So I have a question. Of course, i never seen coralline algae. Uh, How can you describe them, like, visibly? How can you recognize them uh, in the sea?
2: Okay, so as I said, they are red coralline algae. So one of the main features that you could look for is something pinkish or purplish or even a bit red. Um, They are hard, usually. You have all sorts of different coralline algae um, to... To differentiate them, we have two names. One is articulate uh, or geniculate coralline algae, and the other one would be crustose coralline algae. So, in the articulate, they, uh, as the name suggests, are very uh, branched, and they look more like the corals that we're used to see, uh, in the sense that they have a really complex structure. Uh, so they kind of have like those tree-like structures and when you see crustose coralline algae, which are the ones that do the merl beds or rodolith beds, they are usually encrusting on each other and they can be very complex, which is what I'm studying as well, but it's not in those tree-like structures that we are used to see with corals or the other coralline algae. They are more uh, spherical-like structure with branches coming all around in all the directions and they're usually pink, reddish or purple. Uh, You probably do not perceive them as something alive a lot of the time because they kind of look like rocks.
0: Okay, okay, thank you. And what about their distribution? Are they world in that you can find them in all the seas or they prefer like certain temperatures, depth, uh, habitats? Yeah, that's the amazing
2: thing about them. Uh, you can find them all over the, the world, in the global oceans. And even beds. they they can be found everywhere. Uh, however, the biggest ones, uh, the biggest beds ever uh, recognized were in Brazil. And they occur in the whole coast of Brazil, which is really big. <laughs> and uh, in Brittany, we also have the thickest ones, for example, they can reach 10 meters of thickness of those rodoliths. So it's a lot, usually a lot less than that, uh, maybe up to five meters, but it's not that usually that they get that thick. And they can also be found in different kinds of uh, depth regions. They can be found even to 100, uh, 200 meters, which is very unusual for um, other kinds of algae, for example. That's also something really cool about the coralline algae. They, can, they are the ones that are found in the deepest areas among the algae. So they can be very important and there is a lot of research that sh- has already shown that a lot of uh, coral larvae are actually, uh, their settlement is induced by some chemicals that coralline algae produce. So those chemicals, act as um, a guide to the larvae they can sense them Mm -hmm. and they can reach the coralline algae and settle on them so they are very important from for the construction of the reefs as well
1: yeah so basically without coralline algae a lot of the reefs that we see today wouldn't be able to actually exist
2: yeah they wouldn't be at least they wouldn't be the way we see them for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, so they um, they form these very important habitats and you mentioned that they can guide larvae. What, what are some of the other ecosystem services that they provide?
2: Well, as I said, uh, and you already mentioned, they provide these <laughs> structures, these 3D structure, structures. And that's what researchers mainly say is their. Uh, main importance, you know, because when you when you produce those 3D structures in the ocean, so a lot of animals need to find shelter from both the predators and the hydrodynamics and the coralline, coralline algae can give them that. They are very good uh, living spaces and it has been shown that the biodiversity where you have these um, coralline algae reefs are, is very high and they can gather a really diverse, uh, both macro and mayo fauna community, as well as uh, a really diverse epiphytic community, so other kinds of algae.
1: Macro and mayo fauna, um, how would you describe that?
2: In a simpler way, I would just say that the macrofauna are the animals that you can see. Uh, without the use of microscope, for example, whereas the meiofauna fauna are smaller animals. In a simple note, that's how I would describe them.
1: Great. Um, now you mentioned that the seabeds are uh, structurally very complex and a lot of authors attribute the important features that they deliver to this complexity could you could you uh, talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So just uh, so we get to the complexity, I think I still haven't mentioned that some of the those environments where coralline algae are very important are the merl beds or rhodolith beds. In and uh, American English, they mm. are very important ecosystems because they are made of free living coralline algae, uh, and by free living I mean they are not attached to the substrate. So those coralline algae, they attach to each other and form these merl bits or rhodoliths. And mm. those structures roll over in the seafloor and they aggregate. And then you have this highly 3 dimensional ecosystem in the bottom of the sea that supports a lot of uh, marine life. So when I was um, on those notes that I sent you, I was mainly talking about those beds or rudely beds, which is what I'm studying right now. It has been mostly assessed only in a qualitative way. Uh, So instead of actually measuring complexity and structural complexity, what scientists have done historically would be to compare places where you have this complexity with places where there isn't this complexity. So in that sense, it's more qualitative. all the the scientists attribute their importance to this complexity, but the on, the few and there are really few works that actually uh, mm-hmm. try to to get to this complexity of the mole beds. They only did this qualitative um, work, so we don't actually know how to measure complexity. But still, we put the responsibility <laughs> not real responsibility but the importance of the of those. Uh, ecosystems to their complexity, so you, you see, there is okay. kind of a problem there.
1: I also now realized that, excuse me for that, but last episode when I was introducing that you were gonna talk about these sea bats, I completely butchered the the pronunciation of the word. So uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> for teaching me the correct way to see to say the word now. Um, so you are working for your thesis and your internship on these merle bats. Um, and you mentioned historically, they are measured in a qualitative way. But in your thesis, how are you addressing this issue?
2: So, yeah, um, I had to come up with uh, a few methods that has been, have been used before to assess uh, complexity in a quantitative way. So uh, those methods have been used for other kinds of algae. For example, uh, um, macrophytes, like green algae, and also to some corals, but never to coralline algae. And I'm trying to come up with all those methods that have been used before and trying to apply them to MoBits bits and see what works best to describe them. But it's one thing to put them qualitative in that sense, like this one is very complex, this one is not very complex. And it's another thing to actually measure that complexity and try to link those numbers to the diversity associated with those algae. And that's what we're trying to aim with this research. And if we assess them directly in a quantitative way, we can actually see uh, more precisely if that, those differences in, in the complexity are driving some of the differences in the biodiversity.
1: Yeah. Now, um, if you want to make other people as excited as you about coralline algae, what would you tell them?
2: Okay, I think I have the perfect story about that. And it's a research that was done. In, I don't, Of course, I think everyone heard about the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago. Uh, it was that huge environmental problem. So some researchers were analyzing the area uh, after the oil spill. And there were some extens- extensive rodolith beds over there, or merle beds, if you prefer. And after the oil spill, uh, all the biodiversity uh, associated with those myl beds completely disappeared. And it was in 2010, right? So, in 2014, this uh, research team that was led by Krajewski's self, they went to, to collect some merle bits of that area, and they put them back in their laboratory in some uh, tanks, in some microcosms, and they waited for three weeks. And after three weeks, what they saw was this huge algal bloom that reflected the the uh, algal community that was in that area before the oil spill. So what they found out when they investigated that deeply is that inside coralline algae, in those rhodoletes, inside their cells they had some dinoflagellates and other kinds of microalgae. So you have a lot of those cysts of the dinoflagellates and other algae inside the, the rodoliths. and when they put them in, in, the, in those microcosms in the laboratory, they were in good conditions again, so all those creatures living inside them started to bloom, which is amazing, and it shows that even after a huge oil spill, for example, there is some, some part of the ecosystem that could regenerate if the conditions get better. That's something that really made me get like get blown away by those creatures because they're not only important as the bioengineers that I meant, but also their microhabitats themselves. Like there, there are creatures living inside them, and I found that just pretty amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and that actually gives quite a quite a hopeful message as well, right? Just just that these uh, these coralline algae can really um help with carrying on the life that is inside of them
2: exactly. I think uh, that's what made me fall in love deeply when I was starting my research with them because I read this article and I was just I, I, as you said, it made me feel some hope, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So, some hope between all the all the bad news about climate change that we are confronted with uh, nearly on a daily basis. Exactly.
2: Maybe because you touched on the subject of climate change, we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, as we as we mentioned before, those those uh, algae are calcifiers. So of course, as all the calcifying organisms, Climate change is a topic that has been brought up with them, because uh, with the carbonate calcium and the higher pH and higher temperatures, we are seeing a lot of difficulties for organisms that are calcifiers, and uh, it's not that different for coral analogy. We see that they can be very sensitive to uh, abrupt changes in pH, for example. But there is still some hope. There are some experiments that have shown that over generations, uh the crawl algae can um develop some kind of um some kind of resistance to the differences in pH. The problem is that those differences are too abrupt and too high, then there is not much to do. But in steadier uh Conditions, they could develop some resistance to to climate change.
1: So those 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 coralline algae are actually very resilient in that sense. They're able to slightly adapt to their to uh, environmental change. And wow, that that is that's a lot more than I expected from them, to be completely honest. I mean, I, as you said at the beginning, like a lot of people haven't heard of it and myself included, oh, just, the, just the significance of these uh, of these algae is quite incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's what really drives me to study them. But the thing is, uh, it's quite... With most of, of the environment, I think it's the same but I have this contradiction as to one side, they, all those creatures are very, very sensitive to change, but they can also be resilient if we look at some other aspects. So we usually tend to, to say that uh, beds are very sensitive uh, habitats. That's because if you, if you were manipulating them like I am, you would see that they're very easy to break. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> as you know me, you probably <laughs> know that I'm having a bit of trouble <laughs> with that. Uh, so when you have free fishing trawls, for example, just coming up to the the to the bottom of the sea and dragging everything with them, you have a lot of breakage and you have loss of that complexity. So in that sense, those habitats are very sensitive and they can be easily damaged. But They are very resilient in the sense that they have life inside of them that could (laughs) uh, start again after an oil spill or they, yeah, or they can adapt to pH changes. So yes, they are resilient in some ways. And I think that is, that is something to hope for, as you mentioned. So it's really nice. All
1: right. Does, uh, does anyone else want to share
0: something? Francesco, do you have more questions? No, not really. I, I satisfied my curiosity for today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for being, uh, for being a guest on our podcast. Thank it, you for having it, me. It was definitely a lot that, uh, that I've learned today about Coraline Algae basically going from having no knowledge at all about them to actually knowing quite a bit so thank you for that
0: thank you very much victor it was very very interesting and i'm sure now i will uh, after this i will look for it because i need to know more about Cor- uh algae okay? yeah i mean
2: if if it was not a podcast i would show all of the ones that i <laughs> that i have here with me because they are so cute but <laughs> it's not the case so just Google it real quick and you'll see that there are some that are really beautiful. I will do, I
0: will do. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. It was super nice. Of course. Thank you very much, Victor. For today, this is it. We will be back next week with another episode about dolphins and photo identifications.
1: And as always, if you have any notes, critiques or ideas, you can send us a message on our podcast page you'll actually now be able to send us voice messages as well. So go to our Anchor page at anchor.fm forward slash ymnts and send us a message. Until next time.